welcome to Anthropologforeningens podcast, Monographic Happy Hour. These episodes are based on the recordings of the Monographic Happy Hour events, which the Anthropological Association of Denmark co-hosts with the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University. This episode differs a little from the previous two, since it is a recording of an event called a theoretical happy hour. This type of event aims at presenting and discussing paradigmatic turns within anthropology using anthropological texts as point of departure. The event of this podcast addresses a dialogical debate between two books circulating around the theoretical approaches known as the ontological turn and critical hermeneutics. In this episode, you'll meet Jared Sigon, professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Virginia, and Morten Axel Pedersen, professor in the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University. We will begin listening to Professor Sigon giving a short review of Professor Pedersen's book titled The Ontological Turn and Anthropological Exposition. Hereafter, Professor Pedersen will give a review of Professor Sigon's latest book called Disappointment Towards a Critical Hermeneutics of World Building. Finishing off, the two will embark on an open discussion, engaging the audience as well. So if you were not able to attend the event or if you missed a detail, we're glad to take you back for an interesting afternoon in the name of anthropology. The event was chaired by PhD student Maya Ebsen and master student Patricia Frederiksen, who here welcomes both audiences and key speakers. Enjoy. So on behalf of uh, Anthropologing, we would like to welcome all of you to this great event. Uh, we've very much been looking forward to this day. This will be uh, the first uh, theoretical happy hour that we have in Entsplorening this year, and maybe ever. <laughs> um, but as part of our 2020 vision, we have actually emphasized that we would like to organize more of these events uh, with an international outreach. And we would, of course, uh, in particular, like to welcome our two guests sitting up here, uh, Professor Jared. Uh, and uh, Professor Morten Axelperson. And I'll introduce our guest from abroad first. Uh, you are a professor, a William, William and Linda Porterfield Professor of Bioethics and Anthropology at the University of Virginia in the United States. You have for several uh, years worked on drug rehabilitation programs in the Orthodox Church in Russia and the globally networked anti-drug war movement Uh, and this research has taken you to St. Petersburg, New York, Vancouver, and even Copenhagen, to mention a few places. Uh, and for more than a decade, you've been you've written extensively on morality and ethics within anthropology. And I'm pretty sure that no one, or that everyone in this room, has come across the notion of moral breakdown at, at some point. Uh, today, we are here to discuss your newest book, uh, which is called Disappointment: What a Critical Hermeneutics of World Building. Yeah. And we also have uh, our very own Morten Axel Pedersen here. Um, he is a professor of social anthropology at our department, but took his PhD at Cambridge. Um, and you have uh, also for several years done research in a lot of places, uh, among them Mongolia, Siberia, Western China, and most recently in Denmark. And you explored uh, the anthropological themes ranging from shamanism, post-socialism, the politics of culture to Christianity in Denmark, and just to mention a few. Um, today we will focus on your contributions uh, to anthropological theory and the approach that has become known as the ontological turn. Um, and it is one, uh, one turn that you have been one of the very most prominent voices in. Um, and um, the program for today is at the We have both of you reviewing each other's books in about 10 minutes each, and then you'll discuss them for about half an hour. After that, we have a break in about 15 minutes, and we invite you to think about questions that you would like to raise, uh, especially questions that can put uh, the two uh, works in, in dialogue with each other um, before we have uh, the final discussion. So first of all, I'd just like to thank everyone for, um, well, first for organizing this event and then for everyone for, for coming. So thank you for that. Um, so I've prepared some comments here and um, I will 
do my best to see if they kind of fit the, the established rules. Um, I think it's going to be a, a bit of a kind of a already starting a dialogue between the two texts rather than just kind of a block, you know, book one and book two kind of discussion. But let's, let's see how it unfolds. Um, so first, I'd, I just wanted to thank uh, Morton and, and Martin, who's not here, for, for writing this book. I mean, I think it's uh, an incredibly important um, and, uh, and deeply engaging book. Um, you know, as, as, as uh, Morton no doubt knows, and, and, and I've I'd certainly experienced from the, the other turn, the ethical turn, um, you get a lot of constant critique when you try to make some kinds of weird claims sometimes. So, so um, it's really nice to have a text like this that really kind of addresses some of those critiques in a, in a coherent way and uh, also clarifies quite a bit. Uh, so so it's, it's way too early to start calling things a classic because uh, even though in our, in our time we always want to immediately call something great and, and uh, you know, and make these hyperbolic claims immediately, but um, uh, if not someday a classic, then this is certainly going to be a, uh, a key resource of uh, what anthropology has been in the last decade or so, um, and trying to think through how that came about and, and where it's going. But not only is it important for that kind of clarification of, of what they think they've been doing, um, but I think everyone would agree that the, those three chapters there where you kind of give that, that kind of the, the ancestor lineage is uh, incredibly important and will no doubt be read just on their own in classes to come just uh, for the kind of the, 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 the sum, the, not just summary because that kind of doesn't give it enough credit, but the engagement with which and what you draw out of and, and show the importance of some of these cla now classic works for what you did uh, and, then and then the project of where you want it to go. And I just want to say that's the third part that's obviously so important about this text is that is to say the, the way forward, right? I mean, so uh, as we probably know by now, if you just make some kind of claims or engagements or um, uh, do some, produce some work, and then you just let it sit. Okay, fine, that's, that's fine, but you can have a really nice kind of text from that, but if you, if you kind of want, let's call it an agenda, although that might have a negative tinge to it, if you want to do something like build a tradition, you need to also point forward uh, through discussion and debate, and, and that's the other thing that I think is incredibly important here. I want to come back to that, though, maybe more toward the end where Maybe I'd, I'd switch more to the critical engagement. When I read the book, what's, other than the kind of three very broad parts that are obviously important, for me what is deeply engaging, and, and probably because it resonates so much with my own thinking and, and my own body of work, and particularly this book, is what you, you refer to as the three ontological turnings. Uh, which I think if you, if you just kind of want to get a sense of what Morton and Martin are saying the ontological turn is, I mean, this, these are like, you know, if you're only going to read 10 pages or whatever it is, read these 10 pages, I think. Uh, but you should read it all. Um, and like I said, it, I find these so compelling because they, 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 they seem to resonate so much with what I've been trying to do. And this is also partly why I've been so interested in a lot of this work because, you know, here's where you have to be careful how you say things. Despite other people who I might engage with who would be more critical of this, the so-called ontological turn, I see it as doing very similar work to what I've been doing and others who I engage with do just from a slightly other, let's say, direction. And and so that's so here when we talk about these three ontological turnings, this is where it becomes incredibly clear to me, and especially the way you, you talk about it. So the first is uh, reflexivity. Now, 
when, when I read that description of what uh, they call reflexivity, I see the epoche. Um, that is to say, the, the, the bracketing of theoretical assumptions of uh, how we are in the world already, either in our everyday lives or as uh, academics in a discipline. Right? And so, so, for example, you know, a lot of my critical engagement with the ethical turn has been around the point that there seems to be very little reflexivity in a lot of the work in the ethical turn. Uh, it oftentimes seems like kind of an anthropological um, skimming or, uh, uh, yeah, of, uh, of a long Western moral philosophical tradition and, and sometimes of the most uh, like conservative aspects of that. Uh, so, so if nothing else, uh, kind of this book by emphasizing the necessity of this reflexivity is an incredibly important contribution to how the discipline should move forward. The next two, they separate, uh, and I understand why for analytical reasons, but in practice, I think of them as quite similar, or two parts of the same practice. That is to say, conceptualization and experimentation. Uh, the claim that what doing ontological anthropology is, the, a practice of conceptualization. And unless I'm reading this incorrectly, that this, process, this practice of conceptualization is always something like a creative experiment. Um, and again, you know, it's just, to me, it's, it resonates so much with, with what I think I, I do. You know, Maya uh, mentioned earlier uh, moral breakdown. Uh, I mean, for me, that was an, a phenomenological experiment to reconceive something like uh, a moral decision or an ethical dilemma, right? But, uh, but as, as uh, Morton and Martin write in the book, as more... Uh, the, the, the formality, the, the form of what that is, right? So, so again, perhaps it's a bit misnamed with the breakdown and, and it seems to suggest all kinds of, you know, disruptions and whatnot, but really what it was att an attempt to do was a, something like a, a formal dis phenomenological description of this moment of dilemma. Um, and I think that's a bit like what, what uh, they're both trying to get across. So it, so it seems to me that the, the, the similarities that I see in the two books and a lot of what has attracted me to their work prior to reading the ontological turn book, which was then clarified in this book, was that you know, to be a bit kind of crass and perhaps too uh, uh, straightforward with this claim with no nuance, it seems to me that the ontological turn as described here is, is a version of phenomenology. Um, now, I entirely agree with the critique that you make on page 283 of what I would call anthropological phenomenology. This kind of, uh, I mean, let's just be relatively clear that the, the bulk of anthropologists who have claimed to be doing phenomenology focus almost entirely on what's called lived experience, right? And, but when you look at act, the actual phenomenological tradition, that is, you know, at best, a minor focus. Um, and it would be absolutely uh, a misrepresentation to call phenomenology, let's say, proper, or classical phenomenology, a focus on subjectivity or lived experience or experience at all, for that matter. Um, um, so there I would also say there on 283 that that's, there's a little, if your description is really just a, a kind of a critique of anthropological phenomenology, I'm more or less in total agreement with you on that. And some of my work in the past is uh, certainly guilty of that. Uh, but I've been trying in the last, let's say, eight plus years to move away from that uh, toward more kind of, let's call it proper classical phenomenology. Um, but there did seem to be a little bit of a conflation of the two, right? And, um, and especially with your, what I would say, um, a misrepresentation of the notion of bracketing as bracketing out the external world. Um, now we can get into this more in the, the discussion. Um, uh, so, so for example, in that chapter on the thing, which I think is uh, 
I mean, probably my two favorite chapters were the one on the thing and then the, the one on after relations, where you two both kind of showed how, how this is done. Um, again, I would say there in the thing, that is classic Husserl and Merleau-Ponty. Um, and then even other parts uh, very much uh, uh, resonating with, um, with, with Heidegger when he talks about formal indication. Right, you know, so his, in his early lectures prior to being in time, he uh, lays out his methodology called formal indication, where he's talking about letting the phenomenon show itself as itself and, and to, to indicate to us what it is, because it can never speak for itself or, or uh, think, uh, you know, but, but it, what it does, it gives itself over into existence. It indicates what it is in itself, and, and, and we as phenomenologists, or whatever we might want to call ourselves, would then try to describe that, that indication in formal terms. And so, so for him, that's his methodology. And so, so much of what was going on in that chapter resonated a lot with, with uh, that and the kind of classical epoche of Husserl. Some questions to, to, that I would really love to talk about at some point. Um, I would have hoped the future that, um, that you were pointing us toward uh, for the, the, the next turn, as it, as it were, uh, would be a bit more of a radical move toward, I think, what you call alt alternative ontology. But instead, you move to a more, and I'm going to put in quotes, conservative, but I don't mean that in a political sense, uh, man uh, manner of uh, methodology. Um, and it's precisely here in this turn toward methodology that I think the the, the, the obvious connection to phenomenology rests because they, Husserl and Heidegger always talk about phenomenology as a methodology, right? So I was just wondering, you know, why this move? And that's also, I think, a difference of our two books where I'm clearly kind of trying to be this more kind of speculative <laughs> whatever. Um, one question. Second question. We both end our books with the concept of thinking. Um, uh, I read you to be saying that thinking produces difference, uh, while I say that thinking allows us to participate in the difference that already is, and, and thus let it be uh, through this participation. Uh, so if I'm correct in my reading, and I'm not entirely sure that I am, um, then how would, you, how would you try to avoid the kind of domination uh, that production oftentimes leads to? Uh, and the kind of domination that you yourself are saying that you're trying to get away from. And so here I'm trying to make this kind of simple equation of production and domination, and so just something to talk about, and I'm just curious. Last question, and I'll sit down. Uh, we seem to agree that the task, um, that our task is, is, is to be both critical and creative, right? Um, but unlike um, my sense of, of the, let's say, the critical deconstructive aspect. Um, your sense of critical seems to want, I think as you say, to, to add on to rather than to deconstruct. And so here my concern would be something like if you don't do a deconstruction first from which then you kind of rebuild in another way, how, how do you avoid the risk of what I call a repetition of differential sameness uh, in, in the book? Um, so again, I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, so, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for these uh, kind and very stimulating and I think, in, uh, you know, uh, also very interesting questions uh, to, uh, towards the end. Um, I also have exactly the same uh, format, actually, more or less, and we didn't even um, agree on this uh, beforehand, so I also have a, a number of similarities, comments, and I'm going to end up with some questions. I'm not sure I'm going to formulate all the questions in total because that, I might leave that for later, but I'm going to just mention what the themes of the questions are. So, so first of all, I also just want to say that I actually really enjoyed reading this book. I, I read it here uh, over the last couple of days. I, from um, many past experiences, I've learned that one should you know, do the, read those things towards the very end because you, everything is kept kind of fresh. Um, so yeah, it's just a, it's a good read. Like it, it just reads well, and um, uh, it, I think it, it accomplishes two things. It um, it lays out like essentially it lays out an extremely ambitious kind of project, 
it's uh, precisely as you said towards the end, it lays out an, an entire alternative ontology. And not only that, it also uh, like, uh, suggests how that kind of might lead to various forms of political action. Yeah? So that, of course, is a project that is not only relevant and directed at anthropology as such, but also other disciplines within the humanities and the social sciences in particular, but also the wider society and world. So in essence, it's a, an enormous ambition and scope, and I think you know, it, it sort of accomplishes uh, you know, setting uh, as a, an agenda uh, for what could become like a major uh, sort of project, if you like, uh, essentially describing how to make another, uh, you know, other worlds, as you would say, that we can live in, and better worlds. Yeah? Um, and the other thing it does that I actually particularly enjoyed also was uh, a little bit like you mentioned now, the several chapters gave you something in particular. I really like the kind of middle chapters that uh, laid out a sort of gen critical genealogy of various kind of concepts uh, associated with uh, what might call be your standard accounts of, of Western modernity. Uh, one chapter on rights, uh, a very critical uh, and I think very compelling deconstruction essentially of, uh, of the notion of rights and how it, 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 it originates uh, and is associated still with deeply, according to you, uh, conservative uh, notions. Another chapter that does essentially something similar but more ethnographically uh, in terms of concepts of dignity uh, essentially, and the notion of, of, of the good. Yeah? So I really like those kind of middle chapters as well. So now for my, my three uh, sort of similarities, and I think as a kind of framing for that, it's really interesting, and I think those of you in the audience who might have been uh, following some of these debates about ontology and phenomenology and whatnot over the years, are already having heard now, Jared might be a little bit surprised because what is now this? Is, is Jerry now saying that the ontological turn is a form of phenomenology? You know, I thought we were going to come here and they're all going to like disagree about things because one is an ontologist and the other one is a uh, phenomenologist. Well, it doesn't really kind of work like that because I think there's a number of, of surprising, to me, but more maybe perhaps even more for others, uh, similarities to be uh, detected in this kind of across these two works, but that of course also means that there are some price differences. You know, it kind of follows fr from that, that both the similarities and perhaps in particular the differences are surprising. So first to the, uh, the some of the, the the similarity. So first of all, I think in a very kind of basic sense, the two projects laid out in the two kind of books is similar insofar as that they may uh, they they sort of like. Uh, they're based on the same essential claim, namely that anthropology is, an, is also about ontology. Uh, yeah? So it doesn't work to say that anthropology does not deal with people's worldviews and other epistemological questions. Of course, it does that. But anthropology also and inevitably address ontological questions. It must do, it cannot avoid doing so. No anthropologist can avoid uh, dealing with ontological issues, no matter whether he or she wishes to avoid it. Yeah? Uh, so, I mean, here I'm essentially rehearsing things that we uh, claims we're making in the book, but it's also claims I can actually see in the, in your book, Jared. Yeah? So, in, in, indeed, to insist that anthropology is not and should not be concerned with ontology, therefore, is only itself an ontological claim. Because it is, uh, it is an ontological claim that uh, rests on a notion that says that epistemological questions can be uh, completely detached from ontological ones. And in that sense, to make such a claim that anthropology is not about ontology is essentially on par with what Jared in his book calls and identifies and criticizes as conservative metaphysical individualism, i.e. that kind of genealogy of the standard model, if you like, of uh, Western modernity and, uh, and of the separation we, between ontological questions and epistemological ones that, you know, uh, found its uh, absolute sort of like, if you like, um, um, uh, you know, perhaps like was ever became, never became more better uh, explicated and had never more influence than in the case of Kant. And you know, all anthropology since then, according to your account, and I tend to agree, as per the game, is really a, a kind of transposition onto uh, social cultural differences 
of this kind of Kantian uh, project that in, in, uh, essentially like lays out epistemology as what can be dealt with, and questions of ontology are essentially kind of uh, put aside forever in a sort of like perpetual unseek. So in that sense, I think the two books address uh, essentially based on that kind of basic premise. Anthropology is also about ontology. Of course, it's also about epistemology and all sorts of other things. So that was the one thing. The other thing is the, the one thing I, I really liked about the book, and, and, and this shows like how little I actually know about the, 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 the discussions within the anthropology of ethics, although I have recently tried to in a very kind of lame and, and, and a way to contribute some of these, to, to these discussions. But I really liked the way uh, the book is, if you like, anti-moralist. Yeah? And it's skeptical, as you say, of any identity-based and issue-based activism. Yeah? So like, you know, it, 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 it really is concerned with the anthropology of ethics as, apology, as opposed to anthropology, if you like, as ethics. Yeah? And I have myself great problems with anthropology as ethics. And I have not a uh, uh, single problem with the anthropology of ethics. Uh, indeed, I actually think, perhaps maybe even more than you, that various kind of branches of the anthropology of ethics is actually really kind of like a productive uh, kind of way to go for, for many kinds of anthropology. Although I do agree with you that um, your critique of uh, the, the so-called ordinary ethics approach and what you call, very provocatively, uh, you call the descent of Kantianism into the ordinary, yeah? as, a, as a way of, of uh, sort of like summing up what people like Wiener Das and, um, uh, and others are trying to do. So I think you are right, essentially, uh, when you say that ordinary ethics and other similarly metaphysical humanist approaches in the discipline threatens anthropology with a deep conservatism that may not be initially obvious. Having said that, I'm not so sure, uh, you don't say that directly, but I think it's probably what you mean. I am myself more positively inclined towards the so-called virtue ethical uh, approach as has been translated uh, into anthropology by people like Joe Robbins and Laidlaw and others, because I find it, for many re re reasons, extremely useful. Like, for example, when I supervise uh, students, I often end up saying to them, just do uh, the anthropology of ethics like they do. Yeah? And the reasons why I, I, uh, you know, I, I kind of started reflecting, why do I, I say that? You know? Well, is it, is it because I, I'm also doing that kind of work myself? I was led into doing that kind of anthropology because of my, my current work with Christians in Denmark. I think that's one reason. But I think the other reason is that that kind of uh, anthropology of ethics uh, that essentially kind of operates with goes in and in investigates the kind of work that people do on themselves in order to become the kind of people they would like to be. Yeah? That kind of uh, question, to me, really is an updated and, I think, improved version of practice anthropology. Yeah? So it, 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 it allows you to go out and do very many of the same things that a sort of Bourdieu-inspired anthropology would, but it leaves out the very problematic part of Bourdieu, Bourdieu uh, which is kind of like uh, instrumentalism, his reduction of, of human, uh, of the complexity of the human soul, I would say, to a, a kind of uh, economy uh, 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 that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that constantly operates in a, 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 on a sort of calculative basis. Yeah? But it leaves uh, the nice part of practice theory and updates it with, uh, with a capacity to go out and investigate ethnographically the kind of work we do, not just when we don't think about it, but the stuff that people actually think about all the time, debate with themselves, are staying awake half the night, uh, thinking about the kind of work they need to do to become the people they would like to be. Yeah? So the third thing uh, that, uh, that I think is, the, the, is the, uh, for me the most important similarity between these kind of two books is uh, what I would call the rethinking of humanism. Yeah? Uh, contrary to what probably everyone almost in the world uh, kind of go around thinking, possibly including you, uh, I don't think that there's a difference between the kind of claim that at least Martin and I are trying to make in what we call our ontological turn and a sort of classical anthropological um, investigation uh, of what it means to be human. Yeah? I, 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 my understanding of post-humanism, unlike many of the so-called post-humanists, which I've, you rightly criticize, I think, 
that for me, post-humanism, the relationship between post-humanism and humanism is similar to the relationship between postmodernism and modernism. Postmodernism is just more modernist yeah, than modernism. And so for me, post-humanism is more humanist, or at least ought to be more humanism. Post-humanism, at least the kind of post-humanism I'm interested in, is a method for reinvigorating humanism, for escaping you know, what you call metaphysical humanism and reproductive futurism, so as, so as to lay bare, if you like, in phenomenological terms, a path towards a clearing, towards the revelation of what anthropology and humans and humanity could be. So I really, really fundamentally, I'm not interested in mountains or animals or what know I. I'm really just in interested in finding out what is humanity. But the method for doing so is via the ontological term. Yeah? Claude Lévi-Strauss laid out in The Savage Mind what actually he meant by the, uh, being anti-humanist. Yeah? Of course, what Lévi-Strauss meant by being anti-humanist was anti-humanist was essentially a heuristic method to bracket out, to make an, if you like, a phenomenological epoche of what humans are in order to find out what humans are. Yeah? Doing anti-humanism as a method to get to a point where I can reassemble man, where I can reassemble anthropology in a, uh, in a way that it escapes the impoverished metaphysical humanism of Sartre and others. And of course, that's my, one of my several questions for you in light of this. Uh, uh, what is actually the difference between you and uh, what you criticize in the book as neostructuralism? Yeah. Because neostructuralism is nothing more than a methodological kind of like manure by which we, try, uh, we and others involved in it try to reassemble what humans are. Yeah. Thank you. Well, first off, thank you for the kind words. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's great. Um, so maybe I'll just start right off from where you ended um, with the question on neostructuralism. Yeah, as you also know, sometimes you write those sentences where you're like, oh, the neostructuralists or something like that, and maybe you don't mean it quite as rough as it comes off, but... But, you know, because kind of what I do, for better or worse, is try to put anthropology, whether as ethnography or as a, as a discipline, in a dialogue with phenomenology mostly, but also continental philosophy broadly construed, and try to do something like what Martin might call a re recursive conversation through that dialogue, um, just, you know, my shtick, my home, I guess, my, my line of, of conversation is through that phenomenological tradition. So, um, but what's clear to, I mean, what it becomes more and more clear every day uh, is that whether or not you conceive of this as a, a kind of direct influence of, for example, Levi-Strauss, or it just being something in the air at the time, or a combination of the two, um, I think this is what, what, what it points to is that we as anthropologists, and let's just talk about our discipline for now, um, would do well to have a, a broader grasp of the longer and broader intellectual history that we are a part of, right? And, and not just knowing our own specific ancestors very well, but also knowing who were they in conversation with, you know, being very aware that the discipline emerged at an intellectual time when neo-Kantianism was the dominant way of doing philosophy in Europe, and, and, and everyone had to think through it, against it, around it, you know, it's a, and anthropology grew up as that, you know, I mean, you can read Durkheim's, especially the elementary, uh, religious forms is uh, the first critique of, of Kant just kind of like on its head, right? Uh, uh, we know that uh, Franz Boas, in one of his first trips, fieldwork trips, had the first critique with him 
uh, as, you know, reading material. I mean, this was just what our intellectual ancestors did, and it was the milieu that they were in, and, and we need to, I think, kind of step up the game and have a, a broader intellectual history that we um, play around with and, 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 and think about. I totally, I, I loved your engagement with the ethical turn. <laughs> it's also exciting that you're more and more uh, kind of interested by it and taken up by it. Um, and I agree with you on the virtue theory thing. And, and um, you know, I think a lot of my earlier works, of, I mean, like the HIV is God's Blessing book is uh, very much about looking at how people either on their own or through institutional settings kind of work on themselves to become something that else, whether they want to or, you know, that that's an open question, right? But, um, um, and, you know, and the, kind of the, the dirty little secret that I always give people is, like, you can read the critical hermeneutics as a uh, kind of a, an indication of my own intellectual trajectory, that uh, two of my main supervisors was... Uh, one, Talal Assad, critical, McIntyre, Foucault, Aristotle, mm -hmm. virtue, and Vincent Crapanzano, mm -hmm. you know, hermeneutics, phenomenology, mm -hmm. um, psychological, you know, and, but also with a keen interest in like kind of working on yourself yes. in a phenomenological, psychological kind of way, right? So, but my, when I try to think of virtue theory, I, I try to also think it through, again, Heidegger, always my go-to person, for better or worse, um, who was a, a keen reader of Aristotle. And I don't know if you know Jonathan Lear, but he's one of the contemporary kind of main Aristotelians in the world. And, and he once told me that in his opinion, uh, Heidegger is uh, probably one of the most brilliant readers and interpreters of Aristotle. Uh, and, and so you could, and he just doesn't, you can read it in lectures rather than, um, you know, the few books and articles he, he wrote. But uh, uh, so also there, you know, I mean, so I think, again, you can read Being in Time as a version of Aristotelian virtue theory. Well, maybe I'll just pick up on here because, uh, you know, one thing that, um, that um, to, to go back to, you, uh, you posed very several interesting questions uh, towards the end of, uh, of your own uh, uh, notes before. And, and uh, the one that I really think is completely well taken is that in our conclusion, uh, and maybe also in the introduction of the, of the book, like, you were somewhat surprised that we're not more kind of what you call more radical. You, you felt a certain conservatism by which you very rightly pointed out, not that conservatism, but the other conservatism, the conservatism simply meaning here making a lesser claim, yeah. you know, that we make a lesser claim. We're saying this is really just, if you like, a method, and and uh, and very, you know, completely, very, very deliberately in the book, we try. Apart from the first chapter where we lay out all these different engagements with an ontology, not just in anthropology but also other disciplines. So in that chapter, we obviously uh, relate to you know, ANT and STS and object on oriented ontology and what know I, all sorts of stuff outside of anthropology, but in all the other chapters, we really just try to stay within anthropology. Like, very deliberately, these, these kind of like um, genealogies of the thought of Roy Wagner versus the Castro and Strathern are made kind of like as, as a kind of history of anthropology. And of course, we could at any given point decided to contextualize it in whatever happened, <laughs> as you just pointed out, these people working alongside others, or wider intellectual political movements, but you know, deliberately we didn't do that because we wanted to stay within anthropology and make really a, a sort of like almost a sort of like a, a particular kind of history of anthropology that shows how the, what we consider to be the three major traditions, uh, most like people like to present it as the three major traditions: the American and the French and the British, in in, in a strange way, come together in what we call the our ontological term. Yeah? So, uh, so in, to come back to the question of why, whether it's so, the claim is so small, I, I really think that you know, I, um, that having for several years, having been part of debate and other contexts, and being also a younger graduate student, made bigger claims about what the world is or could be. I just came to the conclusion that I don't actually think that um, we should make those claims. Yeah? 
uh, you know, uh, or rather can. I think what anthropology can uh, is to uh, describe or devise kind of methods for inquiring the world in a particular way. And of course, those kind of forms of inquiry also, as I noticed earlier, have ontological implications. You know, all forms of inquiry, all forms of practice have. But we don't want to lay out precisely what you call alternative ontology, which is almost what you do. And in that sense, the two books almost crosses path, yeah? Like, you know, where you came from before, to some extent, where we are now, and vice versa, yeah? Ours is, is really a kind of like methodological uh, exercise. And as we, as we put it in various uh, 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 places in the book, the difference between ontology as metaphysics or alternative ontology or ontologies, as opposed to what we like to call the ontological turn as an critical heuristic uh, on epoche, if you like, a technology of description that uh, uh, you know, asks ontological questions in order to solve epistemological questions. It never makes substantive metaphysical claims. At least it does not explicitly do so. Of course, one can then argue, can one avoid doing that? But that's another matter. You know, uh, uh, but you know, the, 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 very consciously and very deliberately, we never use ontology in the substantive. We never make any metaphysical claim. We simply say that this is a method for doing anthropology, and specifically is a method for, for constructing concepts from your own ethnography. And that does not, of course, mean, and you are well aware of that, that that doesn't mean that we want to try to think like the Mongols or whatever. It's our enterprise, it's anthropology's own enterprise, yet it's a particular kind of way of refining the kind of concepts by which we can precisely facilitate this kind of reinvigoration of anthropology as a proper humanist, if you like, kind of project as per the, the last point I made before. Yeah. So in, that's a, in that case, I actually wanted to ask you, it's a little bit of a cheeky question, but you know, nevertheless, you, are, on the other hand, are presenting a new alternative ontology, yeah? and you, you made that very clear also now. Yeah? You are writing about ontology in the substantive. Yeah? You're writing about worlds. But how do you make sure that presenting an alternative ontology does not just become another, what you call, repetition of differenti differential sameness, another theory of everything, another ground. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, yeah, so I don't think you can ever avoid that. I mean, I, in a sense, um, for me, um, you know, I'm just going to call it intellectual work, uh, is an ongoing process, right? And, and so the, the last thing I ever expect is to say the last word or be, to be held to um, uh, something for very long, right? And so, um, so uh, you know, even if somehow this book ends up, you know, somehow being the next first critique, <laughs> uh, uh, all that means is... Uh, a lot of people found it compelling, and uh, part of that attraction means that uh, you go after it to, to try to then develop it into something else, right? And then this is just part of an ongoing tradition. So, so while on the one hand I would say, to, although I, I obviously also try to like hedge my bets and talk about you know groundless ground and an anarch, anarche and yeah. stuff like that, right? Um, um, there's no doubt there's something like substantial claims being made, but I'm also fully aware that these are speculative claims. Mm -hmm. and, and here's where I'm going to maybe turn it around mm -hmm. back to you a little bit and, and, and say that I think that the question I'm trying to answer by do, being speculative in this way is, is a question that, that you two raise, and this is where I was cons like wondering if if you're actually sneaking in an alternative ontology despite your uh, rhetorical claims, I th whether you say this directly or not, I'm going to say what I'm trying to do is ask the question, what would being or existence, I'm just going to make them equal for now, uh, uh, have to be in order for you know, some of these ethnographic 
slash analytic claims mm -hmm. to be true, yeah. right? And then kind of run with it. Yes, um, like an ontological procedure. Yeah. yeah, now, precisely. Um, now, I, I, at least rhetorically, I didn't have an issue kind of throwing it out there and being like, well, this is what, the, this is what existence must be like in order for dwelling or attunement mm -hmm. to be the case in these instances, right? Now, I think there's also points in, in your book <laughs> where you get really close to saying things like that, right? Uh, but maybe the difference you're going to say, and I'll just allow you to actually respond, but uh, is something like those claims, for example, in the thing chapter, you have a line like, you know, everything is, you know, uh, change or something like that, yes. right? Um, um, maybe you're going to say something like, yeah, but I don't mean that like in the full yes. kind of like ontological sense, but just in this instance of the, yes. the, the talisman or whatever yes. precisely. Yeah, yes. so. In terms of your question, which I think is a good one, yes, I think there's this, um, and we've been criticized for that by Laidlaw and others, I think it's a good criticism, although I, I wonder, I wonder whether there are any anthropologists who are not somehow guilty of this particular sliding scale by which when you write about a few people uh, in Mongolia, uh, somehow becomes about many people, the Mongols, or maybe even everyone. Yeah? And th these kind of slidings are you know, very difficult to avoid because it's built into our aesthetic of which we how we write ethnography. But if the, you got the impression that we're making a metaphysical claim that the world consists of change, is change, is change itself is what the world is or something like you know which is which i think is a, is a adequate account of in, in sort of ethnographic terms of what a, a, a mongolian shamanic spirit is a an almost a materialization of but it, that is not supposed to be, be made into a general claim as per ingo look we just go there to mongolia or siberia and then we find out what our world is really like as well so if it's if it's read like that it's it's a mistake because i think and th that actually leads me to another question. Uh, and maybe again, uh, many people here will be somewhat surprised by this, but I actually have a problem with the idea of many worlds. Yeah? And the reason why many people here might be somewhat surprised by it is because I partook in a debate some years ago here where I precisely defended the claim, we live in many worlds as well. But I, what I, but I also made clear back then, in the, in the also in the published version, of that, that I might as well have uh, made the other claim. Yeah. I was asked to defend the claim, we live in many worlds, but I could also have made a claim, we don't. Yeah. Now I'm making the don't claim. And the reason, of course, is that because somehow I think we neither live in one or many worlds, and I'm interested in theories that allow me to think, to not end in a situation where I have to make the decision whether we live in one or, may, or many worlds. You know, so, but you actually come out, if you like, on the one side. You, you come out on the, on the multiple world side. You know, that's essentially one of the kind of core claims of the book. And I, I think you make a very con compelling argument as per a sort of Heideggerian notion of, of, of uh, the locale and dwelling. And uh, very kind of interesting in the middle second part of the book. But where I was somewhat uh, concerned was in the in the in the f especially especially in the introduction of the book, you um, you write uh, you, you write about something you call ontological traditions, mm. yeah. So you, you, and you also s refer to the, that kind of metaphysics of humanism, what I call the standard model of modernity. You describe that as an ontology, is what you call it. You also refer at some point to our ontological tradition, and of course that does lead on to the good old, if you like question that now needs to be posed for you. How is your concept of ontology actually not just another word for culture? It just seems to be like, you know, moving culture to a deeper kind of level. Som somewhere uh, in the introduction you write that ontological traditions um, are different from what you call discursive traditions in the sense that if discursive tradition establishes a range of possibilities for speaking and acting, then ontological tradition establishes a range of possibilities for being, including the range of possibly existing discursive traditions. But that just sounds quite close to me to this kind of like a silence, like deep ontology, deep culture kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you escape? How do you escape the culturalists? Almost infinite regress, if you like, in your multiple worlds. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, all excellent questions. Um, so maybe, yeah, I'm probably not clear enough on this, and this is maybe where uh, certainly one of the shortcomings of the book is that I, I don't make a strong enough distinction between uh, what I call ontological tradition and something like let's just call it being. Um, you know, so. You know, if, if I had to just write a quick definition, I would say something like being is nothing other than pure potentiality, mm. right? And then, and, and then that which exists, uh, again, kind of has this recursive relationship with pure potentiality or being that, you know, kind of, you know, uh, allows or disallows certain kinds of uh, emergences, let's call it, right? Uh, but because humans ended up, for whatever reason, having this kind of privileged ontological position in existence, um, what I call ontological tradition is something like what you describe, right? Uh, including, you know, not just culture, but you know, power mm. and all this, and, and you know, and violence and all this mm. kind of thing on it. But, but. In a, I'd say in a much more broader way. This is why I like the word tradition mm. rather than culture, mm. right? Because it, this way, it's not uh, doesn't uh, immediately evoke this kind of traditional, bounded culture thing, and mm. and it's also why I feel comfortable, despite the, the obvious issues with it, of saying something like our ontological mm. tradition, because mm. I would say our ontological tradition, while not the only one that exists on the earth today has certainly become dominant primarily through things like colonialism, empire, capitalism, and this, you know, the, mm. this, the spread of uh, an ontological tradition from a certain corner of the earth. So our here, just to clarify, our here refers to your own uh, social and cultural background, not necessarily to our as us anthropologists, or does it refer to both? I would say, uh, well, again, I wouldn't call it a social cultural background. Mm. I, I, I would want to make a distinction between mm. ontological tradition mm. and social cultural mm. background, although clearly in some ways related. Mm. Uh, um, and then the hour is indeed everything, every person you just named and, you know, many, 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 many more, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, uh, that we're, you know, as Heidegger would call it, we're thrown into a world. An age is framed by an ontological tradition. And, and part of what politics is for me is the attempt to work out of that, uh, which is, again, I think is something that you two are also trying to do. Uh, in some ways, I might, if I had to rewrite this book today, I might want to skip the world altogether and just focus on situations. Mm. But I think, so for me, I think it becomes obvious that situations become kind of the primary site yes. of, uh, 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 primary site. Um, but what worlds does, while, while multiple people, multiple existence, so to go beyond just humans, can uh, get caught up in a situation, um, not, what a world does for me is it kind of includes more existence into where I, I find myself at any particular moment beyond the situation, right? So it's, it's kind of a way to ha like maybe have another kind of gathering of existence without having it be so confined to a situation, right? And, and so that's, so a situation as I write is uh, becomes incredibly important then because I think of it then as something like a, a wormhole to yes. other worlds or or a bridge to be a little bit more you know boring about it <laughs> but um, um, but I'm not so sure if I had to do it all over again that's how I would I would do it but, uh, yeah. okay good thank you're ready to continue now and um, with your questions Um, actually, this, um, my name is Eva Otto. Um, this is a question uh, uh, for you to maybe just reflect a bit more on, for me to hear, because I'm just curious about this. Um, because you kind of started on it, but I would like some more. Uh, modern, you talked about uh, the ontological term being a methodology, um, without being explicit about claims of what humanity and, and ontology is. 
Um, but at the same time, anthropology is about um, researching what the human is, or what yes. is humanity. So I would like some words, maybe from both of you, on the connection between methodology and claims about what humanity is. Mm. So how do we get from one point to mm. the other? Very good. Uh, can I start out? No, I think that's a, that's a really good question, and um, because you know one of the you know one one noteworthy page in your book, which I understand that you had to put in, but at the same time I was somewhat unconvinced about. Although I don't know what the answer would be to how to do it otherwise. You say something like you operate with a minimal essence. You call it. Yeah? You operate with a minimal essence of what humans are, and the reason why you do that because, and I completely agree with you. We we must and should, as anthropologists, operate with a kind of default notion that there's something that, uh, that all humans share. Yeah? We must do that because it's just too dangerous not to do that, yeah? for political and otherwise. Yeah? But in terms of your question, and that was actually useful for me to start thinking about that, why minimal essence might, might is there another way of getting around, staying with the claim that, which I think is a necessary one, that all humans share something, can one stay with that claim without actually talking about a minimal essence? That sounds almost impossible. Unless, of course, we operate with a notion that precisely the purpose of these kind of two books and many others, maybe the purpose of anthropology as a whole, is to constantly, well, expand is the right word, but find out more and more about what humans are. So in that sense, we will never stop finding out what humans are. Anthropology will always find out more about what humanity is. What we find out is in a, in a, in a fundamental, generic sense, shared by all humans. Yeah? Uh, yet we find, out, we find it out by discussing, uh, by investigating ethnographically different sociocultural configurations. So in that sense, possibly in relation to your question, we could think about humanity as such, as a sort of becoming, by becoming, I mean, it's a we could think about it as a virtuality, and it goes back to the one and the many we talked about earlier on. The anthropological investigation of, of, uh, of what humans are takes the form of an exploration of a, of, of a potentiality of what humans are, have been, and could be. And the totality of what humans have been, are, and could be is the object of anthropology. Yeah. So that would be my answer to you. That it actually never stopped yet it adds to itself uh, uh, more and more. Yeah? I think when I, that, that minimal essence is, you, the, the simple definition of it would be something like uh, an, uh, an openness, mm -hmm. uh, something like that, right? I, I, hope, I hope it's slightly more interestingly and complexly written than that, but that's basically what I'm trying to say. And, and the point of what I, what, the important point that I try to get at it is that it's that sharedness, that sharedness of openness is what allows for the difference of, of, of being human that we all experience, uh, not only as anthropologists, but in everyday life, right? And, and so instead of kind of starting at the other end of, of let's say, a maximum sharedness, and which then, you know, uh, we have uh, good historical records of how that maximal starting point uh, too often gets violently imposed to erase difference, I, I want to start at the minimum sharedness to, uh, uh, to think about how that gives way to the difference that we experience. Um, um, and I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, while you two don't uh, come out and say it explicitly, the, the final section or the penultimate section of the, the chapter on after relations um, where you talk about the human as kind of this open potentiality. Again, that's not a direct quote, but it's something like that. And, you know, this is, I mean, to me, this is, uh, if not the exact same kind of characterization, it's extremely similar, right? And, um, and it's also, again, as a, an out-of-the-closet Heideggerian, um, to me, you know, that section is um, uh, a great anthropological retelling of, of section 31 of Being in Time, where Heidegger describes Dasein as potentiality. Um, so, um, um, you know, I mean, so again, I think this is a place where we are sharing a lot. Maybe 
we have slightly different ways of, of articulating it, but uh, it's. Uh, I think a lot of yeah. a lot of. A lot of yeah. <coughs> yes, my name is Esther Um I have a question that hopefully might open a dialogue between the works of both of you. So, Jared, I'm going to hunt you with a question that I also posed to you on Friday. Okay. And just to loop everybody in, Jared was giving a presentation at KUA. And I noted that throughout his presentation, a lot of notions of the other or otherness were present. So like interior others, exterior others, experiencing yourself as other. And more than also in your book, I noted that a lot of takes on the other and otherness are present. And while it seems like you have this overlapping attention, I also think you approach the other or otherness quite differently. So maybe if you could just reflect a bit upon that and relate it to some of the discussions we already had today. Hmm. Very briefly, as far as I'm concerned, because having so much ink has been spilled, necessary ink on, and therefore maybe it wasn't spilled actually, on, on um, uh, people associated with the ontological term, clarifying the very obvious and I think often well-taken critique, why this is not just some kind of exoticizing po uh, project that talks about Siberians and Mongols and Melanesians as kind of other kinds of people with different, you know, mental and bodily capacities and whatnot, i.e. others. Yeah? So there's some others out there and then there's kind of us. The very brief answer, I think, that the way we try to kind of like outline in this book is that um, the other, the alterity that is necessary for the ontological term, but actually all anthropology as far as I'm concerned, to actually operate, yeah? is a kind of like founding condition of doing anthropology, yeah? the notion of the other. Yeah? But that other, of course, it can, might as well be an internal one. I, it can be like, you know, what I could be. Yeah? So fundamentally, for me, the other is a kind of trope that installs a kind of like analytical and ethnographic procedure that is called anthropology. Yeah? Without it, there's just no anthropology. It's reduced to, if you like, sociology or political science, and they are very kind of worthwhile uh, projects, but for something to be anthropology, it needs the other. But of course, not the other as a sort of exterior, you know, kind of object, but the other as a kind of trope that allows me to kind of think what I could not think before by probing ethnographic materials from this room or Mongolia in particular kind of ways. So... For me, the other, uh, here I'll maybe I'll focus more on uh, the importance of that in the kind of ethical theory and tradition that I tend to work with and uh, which comes uh, primarily from Heidegger through Levinas, right? And, and, you know, and, and most obviously through Levinas. And, 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 and for him, uh, the other is, is the the starting point of of my subjectivity right so in contrast to m almost all other ethical theories in in the so-called western tradition um uh levinas is very clear that the subject uh begins from the other uh and but this is an other that I, as the subject who is made through the other, can, I can never, what he calls, thematize or come to know, right? I can never project onto the other what the other is. Um, this, is a relation, this is what he calls in various instantiations a, a, a relation without relation, uh, a relationship of infinity, right? Um, um, there's no way of kind of dominating what the other is or will become uh, for Levinas. And, and for me, this is incredibly important uh, uh, in two ways, not just for that kind of obvious ethical relationship that Levinas talks about, but also the, the broader phenomenological um, hermeneutic um, implication of it that, that I myself am also always other to myself, that, 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 that I am always as I write in the book, something like uh, out, uh, outside of myself, trying to catch up with that which I will never become. Um, and to me, that's what the subject or the self is. Um, 
and that and and that's necess- that only happens because we're in a world with with others um, and can I just add to that it just harks back to what we talked about before the break why the sort of kind of virtue ethical approach is so useful because precisely it's a way of ethnographic probing just that yeah, as far as I can see yeah? Yeah. thank you that's yeah. a great final word yeah. This podcast is produced by the Anthropological Association of Denmark. Today you heard the recordings of the theoretical happy hour with Jared Sigon and Morten Axel Pedersen, discussing the insights of their respective books, Sigon's disappointment towards a critical hermeneutics of worldbuilding, and Pedersen's The Anthropological Turn and Anthropological Exposition. The event was held on the 6th of June 2018 in Ethnographic Exploratory at Copenhagen University. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also, stay tuned for future events on the association's Facebook page and gain more insights to the work of Anthropologforening on our website at anthropologforening.dk. Thank you for listening. Og til de danske lytter, er du ikke allerede medlem af Anthropologforeningen Danmark, så kan du blive det i dag ved at tilmelde dig foreningen på vores hjemmeside. Den finder du på www.anthropologforeningen.dk. Tak fordi du lyttede med.